Let us pray. Father, we bless you for allowing us to be here to worship together as the family of God and to exalt the name of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And and we thank you for Januaries. Januaries are sort of like uh, an annual Lord's Day, an annual Sabbath where we can look back on the past and look forward to the future, make an assessment of where we are in our walk with the Lord and devote ourselves to pleasing you with all that we do as we walk in this journey uh, called life. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful. Forgive us of our sins and let them not burden us for the trek that we have before us. And I pray, God, God that you would help us to have uh, just a special zeal for the things of God and a love for God's people, a love for truth. I pray that we would devote ourselves to service uh, and to truth. And God, that you would help us to be motivated by this morning's sermon, God, as we look at this precious passage of Scripture that has been such a help to the people of God for some 2,000 years. And I pray, God, that you would give us a vision of the heaven to come and help us to live for that heaven to come even while on this earth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please do turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're only going to look at verses 9 and 10 today, but probably shouldn't say only because they are certainly action-packed verses here, but we have uh, gone picking back up uh, where we we stopped for the Advent season in 2 Corinthians. We've been back uh, for a couple of weeks now, uh, and uh, we're going to continue with this wonderful lesson from the Apostle Paul. But here now the word of the Lord that comes to us from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses again 9 and 10. God says, and Paul writes, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed uh, for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You know, so as we look at this kind of verse, we ought to consider and ponder for for a while on these texts, what motivates you? What gets you going? What drives you? Uh, God has given every one of you a special gift, special callings. There's certain things that you like, certain things you don't like. But for the Christian, Paul is on to something here that really ought to drive every one of us as a believer. And he has just emphasized, if you go back to the previous text, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, our previous uh, passage from last Lord's Day, he's just emphasized the certainty of the resurrection, saying, for we all know, we all know, this is standard theological understanding of Christianity, we all know that if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, that is our body, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So he's, he's, again, pointing us to this wonderful future of hope where we're going to be, uh, have a resurrected body and we're going to repopulate a resurrected earth and live forever and ever and ever and ever. Not by faith, but by sight. So now Paul is going to talk, with that in mind, with this glorious future that we have, what are we to do with our unresurrected bodies now? How are we to live this life in preparation for the next life? So he's going to start off here, therefore, as our ambition. Now, it's interesting the, the, the way he starts off here because often you think about if someone were to say that person's very ambitious, that would often have negative connotations, right? 
I mean, what are some of the words we often associate with, with ambition? Um, we might think of somebody who's selfish, manipulative, narcissistic, prideful, self-promoting, arrogance, that kind of thing. Matter of fact, the English word ambition comes from the Latin word ambitio, which, uh, which was a verb that meant to go around, and it was used by uh, the Romans to talk about a politician who would go around shaking hands and, and getting votes, and it was to describe someone who sought promotion at any cost and to achieve selfish ends. Often, ambition has a negative connotation in Scripture as well. You see in 1 Kings 1 Five, it says, now Adjaniah, the son of Haggioth, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 14, uh, speaks of the king of Babylon, but many theologians think he's actually referring to Satan. But you uh, uh, said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven. <clears throat> I will raise my throne before the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Satan fell because of his ambition. John speaks of someone in the church with ambition. I, uh, in John, uh, 3 John 9, I wrote something to the church about Diophantes, who loves to be first among, uh, among them. He does not accept what we say. Jeremiah warned, but you, are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. So ambition often has negative connotations, but, but one definition of ambition is also the object or the goal desired, right? So if the object and the goal desired is a good thing, the ambition to achieve those things is a good thing. And that's really what Paul is talking about here. He's saying that we have as our ambition to be pleasing to God, okay? He's not using the ambition in a negative sense, but actually in a very positive sense. As a matter of fact, this idea of this term, have as our ambition... In the Greek is, the, is philo time omai, which means philos, love, and time honor. So we're to love honor. We're to love honor. Matter of fact, what Paul is talking about really here is what we would call zeal. We are to have zeal for God. We're to be consumed with God's glory and our love relationship with God. Carlton Wynn uh, received a, uh, a, a book as a gift from the Gospel Coalition, it's a, it's a devotional to go along with uh, Calvin's Institutes. And, uh, and if some of you are going through Calvin's Institutes right now, it's a devotional to kind of help you with that. And it starts off with Sinclair Ferguson, who, of course, you know, I mean, Sinclair Ferguson can write out a recipe for lasagna, and I would be in tears. I mean, he's a guy, he, he is so powerful. Uh, but Carlton Wynn, who wrote the preface to this Zeal for Godliness book, said this, Zeal for Godliness is nothing less than zeal for the glory of God. It is the burning desire to please the Lord at all times, in all things, at all costs. It is single-handed, soul-consuming pursuit of the heavenly prize of our salvation. Wow, that's a great definition, isn't it? Well, we often don't feel that way, though, do we? We are often distracted by the things of this world. So Paul is reminding us that what we are to have is our ambition. So my hope is as we look at these two short verses today you're going to get a sense of what holy ambition ought to look like and that you're going to make this your goal for the coming new year here. So we're going to look really at three different things. The first two are rather short. We're going to see the rule here in verse uh, 9c, the range in 9b, and the reason in verse 10. So what's the rule? The rule here is, as Paul says, our ambition is to be pleasing to him, pleasing to him. We, when we wake up in the morning, we ought to be pleasing to him. When we go to bed at night, we ought to be pleasing to him. 
And, this, and one of the things that's an encouragement, this is a learned behavior. I remember when, when I became converted some 40 years ago at Clemson, you know, um, the, 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 the gentleman who, who led me to the Lord and who tried to disciple me through this, tried to explain what this ought to be like. What does it be like to be a Christian? And he was trying to explain zeal. That's kind of hard to explain, isn't it? Because it's really connected to your emotions, right? There's, there's an eternal desire that needs to be there. And when you're a brand new Christian, it's a little, it's a little hard to really grasp that. And, and it takes some effort. It takes some work. You've got to get to know this God if you're going to love this God. Well, that's going to take some scripture study and everything. So one of the things we learn here is that, that pleasing him is actually a learned behavior. It's just not natural to humankind. And it's a little unfamiliar for somebody who might be a new Christian or, or a very young person. Ephesians 5, uh, 9 through 11 says, Walk as children of light, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So it's a learned behavior, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. So we're, if you're, we're never going to be completely there, but this ought to be a, the, the, a growing daily, hourly, minutely <laughs> ambition is to be pleasing to the Lord. And we know what that looks like in many ways. It means, for instance, being here. We have a couple that drove from North Carolina just to be, at, I mean, North Dakota to be at church today. That's pleasing to the Lord, right? And California? That's a little bit of a stretch. They were probably going to come here anyway. But still, that's pleasing to the Lord. That's pleasing to the Lord. Every little decision that we make needs to be pleasing to the Lord. And what happens is you develop a habit. You learn to recognize what are things of the light, what are things of the darkness. As you read Scripture, you realize the right from wrong. You learn to hate your own sin and to love righteousness. You learn to love the people of God and to accept them as family. You learn grace. You learn to, to forgive. Now we see that's the rule. Now we see here what is the range. And notice he says it's whether at home or at absent. So this is sort of the whole range of your life here. We're to have an all-encompassing commitment. We're to please the Lord with every single aspect in our life. You know, there's this one reason why there are not more chairs or more, more people here today is the church has a bad reputation. I mean, I don't mean necessarily our church. If it does, let me know. But, I mean, the church in general, how many people have you talked to about your faith? And, oh, these Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. They're a Sunday saint but a Monday devil, right? How many times have you heard stuff like that? Well, that's because people don't believe this idea that you're to be pleasing with him, whether at home or, at ab- or absent. I remember uh, back when I was on staff at CIU, over 20 years ago, there was a young, one of these young bucks that was on staff there, and uh, he had a considerable amount of responsibility considering how young he was, and uh, he was a, an alpha type, you know, always driving, always wanting to meet at five in the morning and things like that because his calendar was full all day and everything, and, and it's interesting, as people got to know this person, um, they, they really had some concerns about him because he was, uh, he was a saint in the office and a devil on the soccer field. He would, he would win at all costs. He was cutthroat. He would lose his temper. He would curse and everything while playing sports. So there, there, was, this, there was this chink in his armor. He, he didn't see that holiness that he is to live all day long also needs to be on the soccer field as well. Colossians, of course, Scripture is full of uh, uh, encouragements in this same area. Colossians 1.10 says, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in what? 
in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is the desire of the Christian. You want to please God. And for a real Christian, they know you don't just do that one day out of seven. We're, to be called, we're called to be living sacrifices. I mean, this is sort of a, a devotion. Our entire life is to be this way. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. If there's a poll in your office, in your workplaces, in your classrooms or whatever it is, and, and people through that poll find out you're a Christian, no one should be shocked. There should be something about you that, w- that was apparent. There's something different about this person. This person is not conformed to this world. He's being transformed into the image of God. Uh, he's, he's really being made for, the, he is made for the other world. But I love this principle that you're to be a living and holy sacrifice. If y'all, I don't know if y'all picked up on this, but we did not kill an ox this morning in front of the chair. Uh, I know we're all grateful for that, too, especially with the price of beef. Though. Actually, maybe we should take, consider something like that. We didn't kill a sheep. We didn't kill turtle doves. We didn't offer up a grain offering, you know. Now, theologically, one reason why we didn't is because Jesus Christ fulfilled all those types and shadows at the cross, all right? So we understand that. But but to say that the church does not have a sacrifice really is not true. We have the sacrifice of Christ, but then we have the sacrifice of every single individual here. Every one of you are a living and holy sacrifice. You're holy, you're set aside for the glory of God, but you don't die in order to prove that sacrifice, your life is to prove that sacrifice. Isn't this what you want? Isn't this your groaning desire? If it's not and you are a Christian, it will come. If it's not and you're not a Christian, you really probably cannot even relate to what I'm saying. You probably can't relate to what I'm saying. Because there's real joy when you live in a manner keeping with what Paul is saying here. 1 Corinthians, he told the Corinthians earlier in chapter 10 of verse, uh, verse 31, whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Now, think about all the things that you've done today already and all the things you will do before you go to bed at night. There's lots of things, right? Is there anything more basic, more common to what you've done today, what you will do tomorrow, what you will do Tuesday, what you'll do, than eating and drinking? Eating and drinking? Again, this is, Christianity is not just a Sunday thing. It's not just worship. It's just not reading the Bible. It's not going around with a fish on the back of your minivan. It's literally eating and drinking. Eating and drinking. He could have said combing your hair. You're to comb your hair for the glory of God? Yes. That's going to be a challenge for some of you. God has not given you hair. (laughs) You're to polish your head for the glory of God, you know. Think about that, folks. You'll probably eat three times a day. You'll probably drink all through the day. Some of you have drinks in here now. That, that basic, basic, basic human principle that you have to do to survive is to be done for the glory of God. Now, what does that look like? 
I don't know. <laughs> you know, I mean, it doesn't mean that you eat communion bread every single meal or something like that. It means that life is to be the glory of God. That's really what he's saying. Whether you eat or drink, everything in your life. So if there's things in your home, if there are things in your car, if there are things on your phone, if there are things in your life that are not going to glorify God, you get rid of them. Well, what if it hurts? Jesus said you're to take out your eye and cut off your hand if that's what it takes. Eating and drinking, we all do all for the glory of God. Why? Because we're God's own possession. Romans 14 says, For not one of us lives from self, not one dies from self. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. So that's the range. There's, you're never going to get to a point where God's going to say, Listen, I tell you what, all this religious stuff that we've been emphasizing, that Dr. Campbell's been telling you about on Sunday and Sunday, that's just not going to, Friday night and Saturday night, that's just off. Don't worry about it. That's just never going to be a point. There's never going to be a point. There may be people who are not here tonight because they, spent, they, didn't, they didn't live and, and drink for the Lord on Saturday night, and now they, 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 they don't feel so good this morning. They're not here this morning. Saturday night is just as much God's as Sunday morning. And, if, and that seems like, if you don't know the Lord, that seems like a burden. Wow, does that, that just seems so boring. But if you know the Lord, you know that really is where true joy is found. That confidence of that, maintaining that relationship with the Lord. Now he gives us the reason, okay? This is hard for us. It's hard for us. So we need some motivation. So God is going to give you some motivation here. What's the reason? Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So the four here, so this follows, the, he provides the reason now, the motivation for pleasing the Lord. Uh, and God wants you to be motivated. You know, it's okay to do things because you're going to be rewarded. That's okay. If it wasn't okay, God wouldn't tell you what the reward would be. But he's telling you what the reward was, would be. So what will motivate you? You know, because what he's working on right now is not success, but motives. Why do you eat and drink for the Lord? What are your motives? Why do you comb your hair for the Lord? Why are you here this morning? What is your motive? Now, if you're like me, that's, all, that's a little bit of a burden too because I don't think I've ever had a 100% pure motive in my entire life. But boy, I sure would love a few 90% and some 80% in there, right? We just have to check our hearts all the time. What's my motive? Why, am I trying to show off? Am I trying to get points, trying to get attention? What's my motive? Well, that takes some practice, really, doesn't it? It takes a lifetime of practice. But he wants you to be motivated because Paul says we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now here, we all, who's he talking to? Remember, most of the, um, with the possible exception of the Gospel of John, the New Testament was written to Christians. That's why Sunday morning is for Christians. This is not an evangelistic crusade. We're preaching to Christians, so you come here to get meat, not milk, all right? So we all, he's talking to Christians, all right? Now, this is important because there's a different kind of judgment for non-Christians. So this is the kind of judgment that you have for Christians. So he's talking to you Christians. This description applies only to to believers, not non-believers, because non-believers will be judged on their sin. 
Non-believers will all stand before the great white throne at the return of Jesus Christ. But for the Christian, and this is really important, folks, because people confuse these categories, and, and they don't need to be confused. For the Christian, when you stand before the Lord, and every one of you are going to do it, you're not standing before the Lord on the basis of your sin. Do you understand that? Why? Because your sin has already been judged. Your sin's already been judged. Jesus Christ already died in your place. So you can approach the throne of grace with with confidence here. 2 Corinthians, he's going to about to tell the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do we feel righteous? We don't always feel like we don't practice righteousness, but you are if you are truly a believer. You are the right, the righteousness of God. Now, a Christian kind of gets that. I wouldn't go make a T-shirt that says that. I'm the righteousness of God. People wouldn't understand. But are you? You really are. You're the righteousness of God because Christ died to make you that way. Romans 8, don't we love Romans 8, 1 and 2? This was my uh, Greek 4 exegetical verse. Therefore, uh, and I don't want to show off, so I'm not going to read it in Greek. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Did you catch that? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's the qualifier. Who's not being condemned for those who are in Christ Jesus? Christians, in other words. For the law of the spirit of Christ, life of Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. No condemnation, no condemnation, no condemnation. So that's important to keep in mind when Paul is about to describe what he's about to describe. You cannot be condemned if you're a Christian when you stand in this judgment. We all appear for the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this idea of appearing here means to be made manifest, to make clear, to make visible, or or to reveal, okay? But I like, uh, Philip Hughes uh, uh, says it like this way. It's, it's not just to be showing up in front of the judgment seat. You know, like, hey, here I am, you know, check off the roll. It's to be, in a sense, exposed before the judgment seat. Philip Hughes says, it is to be made manifest, to be made manifest or to be appear means not just to appear, but to be laid bare, stripped of every outward facade of respectability, openly revealed in the full and true reality of one's character. There's just nothing you can hide from God. There's nothing you can hide from God. The older you get, have you ever noticed the older you get? I mean, I, I read a book, but the older you get... I find myself uh, uh, wearing darker colors more the older I get. No one's willing to nod, but I think you've all gone through this. Uh, I, uh, we like black and navy blue a lot, okay? We like wintertime because you can wear coats and things like that, you know? Yeah, because why are we trying? Because we're not, as opposed to maybe in our younger, younger days, we're not actually trying to show off what we've got, right? We kind of want to keep that covered up kind of camouflaged, kind of, kind of hidden. Folks, there is no camouflage. There is no kind of hidden before the judgment seat of Christ. He sees everything. Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It's an Old Testament principle, right? God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. I remember talking to a banker one time, and... Uh, 
he was saying, he said, you would be amazed, all these hot shots in Columbia Society, these people who think own everything and have so much money and they drive around in the expensive cars and they have the, the multiple vacations. He says, you would not believe how much debt these people are in. Catastrophic levels of debt. Their outward appearance is of incredible success, but the banker knows. <laughs> the banker knows that whole thing's on the credit card. Jesus Christ knows. Jesus Christ knows. This idea of judgment seat is profound. The word is bema. Uh, in the simplest definition, it's a raised platform, what we would call a dais. But it refers to a, ju- a judicial bench in, in this context. And the Corinthians would have really understood what Paul talks about this. You understand what, uh, he's, what he's talking about. But Paul literally, in Corinth, Paul stood before the bema of the authorities of Corinth, Acts chapter 18. But while Gallio was pro-council of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the bema, before the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or of a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names of your own law, look to that yourself. I am one willing to be a judge in these matters. And he drove them away from the bema, from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the bema, the judgment seat. But Galileo was not concerned about any of these things. I think maybe that's one reason why Paul reminds them of this. Because they actually, the members of the church were there with Paul when they saw him standing before the judgment seat. You know what's interesting? Look at me. We're on a, I'm on a bema behind a pulpit. Have you ever been to a court? You ever been jury? You know, hopefully you haven't stood before, but maybe you have. You may have been to a court. What did the judge wear? Doesn't it look like what I'm wearing right now? A robe? Every Sunday when you come to church, this is a reminder. It's kind of a... a of, of this world reminder of what it is ultimately you're going to be standing before. One day, every one of you are going to be standing before the bema of Christ. It's not going to be Pastor Campbell in front of you. It's going to be Christ himself, robed in righteousness. And the standard is that book that always is in front of this pulpit. That's kind of sobering. We need to be sober every now and then, Right? And that's going to happen to every one of us. Why wait till years from now to start getting ready for that? This is an inevitability. This is what Paul's trying to do. But he's trying to motivate you in a very positive sense. Romans 14, he says, We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So in, it's a judgment seat of Christ. It's also a judgment seat of God. God gives the delegated authority to Christ to judge all of these matters. But what's the reason for that? So that, there's our reason, right? There's our clause. So that each one may be recompensed, compensated for his deeds in the body. Notice this is each one. It's a very personal thing. I've literally had people pretty much tell me they're going to get into heaven because their uncle was a Methodist minister. I mean, they didn't say that, but that's what they were implying. You know, I don't need to do all that. My uncle's, I mean, like, Uncle Willie's going to be at the gate? (laughs) You know, he's okay. He's a Methodist. I mean, it's just not going to happen that way. 
but people try, they delude themselves, but each one of us, every one of individual is going to be there. And what's going to happen? We're going to be uh, recompensed. We're going to be compensated. It means to give back what is due, whether it's a reward or, or something else. So, when, so he's trying to emphasize here in their resurrected bodies, one of the first things that's going to happen is you're actually going to stand with your resurrected body before the judgment seat of Christ. And then you're going to be judged by the deed you did in the body in this life, according to everything he has done, everything he has done. I, I don't even know how that's possible, except that it's a God thing. I can't hardly remember what I did yesterday. You ever have anything like, what did you eat Wednesday night? I, I, can't, who, who, I don't know. But God does. God knows everything we've done, everything we've said, every single motive we've ever had. And this is what he's trying to wake them up to. It's a good investment to live for this moment, whether good or bad. Now, this is important. Some of you have English Standard Version Bible, which generally is, a, I really like that. But I don't think that the translation maybe here is as good as it could be because New English Standard says good or evil. New American Standard says good or bad. And the reason why this is important is because the word bad here is not translated the uh, kakos or poneros, which is usually the word for moral evil, but phulos, which means worthless or useless. So, so he's, again, he's not talking about the moral evils. He's talking about those things that just had no profit. They were worthless. They were useless. So you're going to be rewarded for the good things, and you're going to lack reward for the worthless, the useless things, the things where you just wasted your life or wasted the moments. You know, it, here, one of the downsides of doing, having a, a confession on Sundays is it brings back up sins that we've already confessed and that we just, we're just tired of the shame, you know? We're embarrassed about that, but when you're confessing your sins, don't you think, what a stupid thing I did. Why did I do that again? What a waste of time. It was just worthless, worthless. Because in your body, you have opportunity to do things that have worth, and you have opportunity to do things that are worthless. So somehow, God is going to bring all this up before us. And we're going to be rewarded based on what happens here. But again, it's not based on success. It's based on motive. It's based on motive. You ever see that movie, Rudy? with um, Samwise Ganges in it. This just popped in my mind, so it's probably going to be a serious mistake as an illustration. But Rudy, uh, it's, uh, oh, now, Notre Dame, and Rudy was like one of the favorites on the team. He never got to play, but he got to play, and he ended up uh, um, sacking the quarterback, okay? So Rudy was brought into the game, and his team loved him, not because he was that good a football player. He wasn't a good a, that good a football player. But he had burn. He had soul, he had motive, and he had motivation. There are, there are missionaries who labor on the fields for 20 years and never see a convert. There will be no less in their reward because no one gets saved. Because their motive was to see conversion. There are those of us who are doing everything we possibly can to raise, raise Christian children. And they, some of the children may not get saved. 
But what did you do to try to get them to that point? But they're their own moral agents. They have to make that decision. Motive, folks. That's really what he's looking at here. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, he's already told, he really has to emphasize the Corinthians because the Corinthians, they're just so stinking worldly. They're just like Americans. He says here in 1 Corinthians 4, Therefore do not go on passing judgment for the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring, bring, both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. That's why bitterness is so dangerous and why it defiles many. That's why unforgiveness is so dangerous. That's why lust is so dangerous. Because it's all about motives. And then we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's a scrutiny that happens there when we stand before him. Paul gives an illustration of this to the Corinthians. He has to keep telling them the same thing. He's kind of like us, you know. 1 Corinthians 3, this is one of the most remarkable passages in all Scripture. I actually wrote a booklet about this passage one time, and I'm still not sure I know what, exactly what he's saying. But he seems to be making this same point through an illustration of what this situation that we're all going to face sort of kind of looks like. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you may want to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 11. This is one of those where you want to mark in your Bible, and when you're filled with self-pity, and when you're filled with anxiety and doubt and everything, you just go back and read this. And when that tithe check really hurts, or whatever it might be, and you don't want to get up on Sunday, you go back and read this and remember what it's all about. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. Paul's now he's talking about the, the church as the context here, but it applies to us, just our life in general. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Christ is the foundation of the church. But we're to build on that foundation. If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which is built upon it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. Now, what does that mean? I will attempt to give you kind of what I think it, it means. He's going back to the same, he's talking about the same situation here. You, you, all believers stand before the Lord, our life is opened up, and it, it, almost, it almost sounds theatric, doesn't it? Like a movie or a play. Your life, a video or a hologram, I don't know, of your life, and you're in a courtroom, there's probably angels around, uh, you, your life flashes up, and there's this Fire, fire is often used for judgment. There's a judgment that evaluates each one of those motives that you've had your entire life. And the ones that were worthless, wood, hay, and straw, anybody, you, I mean, we got a lot of engineers in this church. Have you ever built a building with a foundation of hay? That doesn't work. I wouldn't want to do much with a foundation of wood either. Right? You've got to have a, a solid foundation. Everything that wasn't gold, silver, precious stones burns up, just like wood, hay, and straw does, right? That burns up easily. But the gold doesn't. The jewels doesn't. 
And then everything kind of falls back down. And all those good motives, all those loves, all of those services, all of those forms of worship, every time you opened your Bible, every time you uttered a prayer, I mean, God gives you credit for everything, everything. Some of you are billionaires. And he gives you that, and he gives you rewards based on that. That motivates me. That really motivates me. It also scares me a little bit, you know. Now, you can't lose your salvation. Isn't that wonderful? He kind of goes to this point. You're going to be saved, but through fire. So those would be people, those Christians who were saved, had fire insurance Christianity, that really just, they were mediocre, lukewarm Christians. They were click-the-box Sunday when Sunday's convenient kind of Christians. They ain't going to have anything. They're not going to get a lot of rewards, but they will be saved. They will experience eternal life. The promises are true. But wow, what about the folks who really did devote themselves to the Lord? We're really serious about God. Recognize that, that service means suffering. And that love will cost you something. You'll have those rewards forever and ever and ever and ever. Now, if we're all happy in heaven, how some will have just greater capacity for happiness. I guess that's how it works. I'm not sure. But boy, it motivates me. And, that's, and, it won't, and God wants you to motivate you. That's why he gave this to the Apostle Paul. So each man's work will become... Evident. This is incentive, isn't it? It's incentive to have holy ambition as we are entering into a new year. How can we be pleasing to the Lord in this new year? Literally, some of you, those of you who are here, you, you threw some jewels in there already today. They're there. They can't be taken away from you. You'll receive a reward from that. And this day, and those, those Christians who are not lukewarm, those who are, well, everybody's going to be grateful at this point in time who's saved. But there's going to come a time when that judge is going to look you in the eye. And he's going to look at all these rewards. And he's going to tell you what that landowner told to the, the servants in the parable of the talents. He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. That one sentence is worth everything. Let us have as our holy ambition this year to be pleasing to the Lord, for it will matter forever and ever and ever. Father, in faith, we turn to you, God. These are hard things for us because we can't see them. Uh, And we know we fail. But I pray, God, that you would help us to be those people who were just storing up massive amounts of gold, silver, and precious stones. Let us take an account of the worthless things that we do and the bad motives. And let us be honest about them. And, Lord, we need help. We need the help from the Holy Spirit. We need help with the fellowship of this body of believers for us to be able to make this journey together. So I pray, God, that you would help us as we enter a brand new year, a brand new year. This could be the best year of, our, the, of the rest of our lives. Help us to prepare for that day where we will stand before the Bema, before the great judgment seat of Christ. And let us just have loads of good work because we pleased you. And we pleased you because we love you. Lord, for those who don't know you, 
there's going to be a terrible judgment, not for reward, but for punishment. I pray they get saved right now, and the Holy Spirit would enter into them, and that this motivation for the believers would also be a motivation for the unbelievers to come to faith in Jesus Christ, so that this year could be the best year of their life for sure. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You'll notice in your bulletin, normally we sing a, a hymn at this time, but you notice that we have something called covenant renewal. This is nothing other than a reminder of what does it mean to be a Christian. And we, we like to do this the first or second Sunday of the new year because it's a time for new beginnings, and we, it's a time to have a, a fresh start. So I would encourage you to look at the covenant renewal you have in your bulletin. It's probably appropriate for us to stand. <laughs> 